Uh, if you got your Bibles this morning, you can turn to John 8 uh, and maybe put a marker in Romans 8. That's kind of where we're going. But uh, we're continuing on in our identity series this morning. Knowing who we are is a big deal. Knowing the, the, the real who we are is, is a big deal. Does that make sense? Uh, the, the world is going to try to tell you who you are. TV is going to try to tell you who you are. Movies, music, everything that we, that we bring into our lives is going to try to tell us who we are. And the hard part is, is that sometimes we, we wind up believing those things. They might not be true. They might be, be completely opposite of who we are. But if we hear them consistently, we think it's true. We believe it. When I was a kid, uh, which my children remind me continues to become a long time ago, uh, when I was a kid, my favorite activity was riding my bike. I grew up in Southern California, uh, and so a lot like Sarasota, Florida, I could ride my bike all year, okay? I, and I loved that. And this was back in the day when like the entire bike was made out of the hardest, heaviest steel they had around. Right, it was probably covered in lead paint, and you know they probably sprinkled asbestos on it just just for for good measure. And we we had a we had a circular driveway, which I didn't realize till after like when I had kids and we didn't have one. How cool that was! And so I would just ride my bike around in circles, you know, for days out there. And one, one day I was, I don't know, maybe five or six years old. I was done riding my bike, and so I I uh, I came back inside. I brought my bike back in the garage. And wouldn't you know, uh, the handlebars had poked through the, the ends of the grips. Remember when that happens and like the grip starts sliding slowly forward? Uh, so there's this big piece of steel sticking out the side of the bike. And I'm, I'm five or six, so I have zero situational awareness. Right? I have no idea what's going on around me. As I bring my bike into the garage, my dad's Beamer was too close to my bike handle. It, it was all his fault, right? Um, and I just put a line down that thing. Uh, and like a good little sinner, I ducked my bike away and ran inside. Uh, I, I don't remember everything about that, but I remember, I, I do remember the feeling. I remember thinking, well, you know, it's been a good run as a Roten. Six years, like, hey, way to go, champ. Like, like they're, they're not going to love me anymore. They're for sure. You know, I was six. I didn't know what military school was, but I'm like, they're probably going to send me there. Um, like, this is it. I'm done. I, I was, I had already convicted, sentenced, punished myself. Uh, the, the, the rest of the story goes is, is that, you know, finally my father makes it out into the garage and he's like, hmm, that's new. And uh, my mom, thanks mom, my mom grabs my bike and like holds it up next to the car. <laughs> and uh, uh, they didn't send me to, to military academy and they, they still love me even to this day. And I did, I, later on in life, I did a lot more than scratch my dad's car. So um, a couple of years ago, uh, at my previous church, I had finished preaching a message out of the gospel of Mark. And it was the, 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 the section where Jesus heals the woman who had the hemorrhage for like 12 years. And the call to the sermon was, hey, church, bring your mess to Jesus. Don't try to deal with it outside the doors. 
literally or figuratively, and then come in. It was bring your mess to Jesus. And I'll, I will never forget this. This gal came up uh, at the end. You know, we, we did the, the good pastor thing. Hey, if you want to chat, you know, come up afterwards. And so this, this young mom comes up to me afterwards, and I, I kind of knew who she was. I knew a little bit about her. She was not a regular attender of our church, but when she came to church, she came to our church. And, and she comes up, and she's, she's just tears in her eyes, just crying. And I said, what's going on? And she had uh, three beautiful little girls. Just, I mean, it was unfair to all the other little girls in the world. These little girls are so beautiful. She had three, three little girls, all from the same father, but they weren't married. They were living together. They were committed to each other, but they weren't married. And through tears in her eyes, she says, Todd, I am not good enough to come to church here. And I was like, well, what do you mean? She's like, you, you, you know my life. You know the decisions that I have made that brought me to where I am today. And I was like, I, I know a little bit. And she said, I, like, I look around at these people and they're so much better than I am. And I was like, can I let you in on something? They're not. But you see, because, because of her, her poor life choices, I'm not negating those, but because of those she began to allow the whispers of the enemy in whatever voice they came to allow her to identify herself as who she was. She walked around with her, with her head hanging low, convinced that she was convicted and sentenced and punished because she, she had made poor life choices. She was living in condemnation. One more for you. John chapter eight. We see another individual who, who definitely understood the weight of their sin and, and this, this weight of shame and condemnation. John chapter eight, verse one says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Imagine this woman. Again, poor life choices, okay? She is, she is dragged, literally dragged out of a bed and brought and placed in the middle of, of Jesus. He's got these people around him and he's teaching and she is standing there. Lucky if she grabbed a sheet to wrap around herself. And everyone is staring and, and everybody probably knew who she was because of her poor life choices. Everybody, they had to have known who she was. She's being treated as an object spoken about if she isn't even there. Talk about shame. Talk about condemnation, right? She had to already have felt judged and sentenced and punished. Have you ever felt that way? Do, do you feel that way now? 
Did you come in in the, the doors this morning and come in and sit down and go, gosh, I hope nobody finds out about Did you sing those songs, maybe thinking, man, that stuff's great for everybody else, but, but it doesn't work for me. It doesn't, that stuff doesn't apply to me. That is exactly what our enemy wants. Scripture is very clear that we have an enemy who is completely opposed to us. Peter says that he, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, right? You've watched Discovery Channel, You see what those bad boys do? That's what the enemy wants to do to you and to me. In Revelation chapter 12, uh, you you can just write this down if you want. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, our enemy is referred to as the accuser. It says, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. He is ready and waiting and desirous of accusing us of anything he can. And he, he is looking for anyone to listen to the accusations. And when the God of the universe doesn't listen to the accusations against his children, the enemy turns his attention to us, to the children. And he whispers, he yells, he uses other people. Because I firmly believe if he can get us to live feeling condemned, think Eeyore, okay? I know we're getting heavy really quick, so let's lighten it up a little bit. Remember, remember Eeyore, right? Like, so cute, right? But so sad. Never was happy. Everybody could be skipping and prancing around him, and he's like, it's the worst day ever. If the enemy can get us to live that way, if the enemy can get us to live feeling condemned, even though we're in a relationship with Jesus, even though we're going to look at this in a second, but even though Jesus, he's taken everything out of the way, he's died for our sin, and we would say we believe that, but if he can get us to live just head down, slumped shoulders, like, oh, I would argue that he wins. Because if that's how we're living, if that's how, I'll I'll personalize it, if that's how I'm living, I'm going to be completely unproductive for the kingdom. And totally unattractive, right? Like who wants to live that way? Yet I would argue this morning, and I think you would agree with me, that this mindset is the complete opposite of who scripture says we are and of how it has called us to live. I would go so far as to say, if that's the mindset that we have, we do not understand the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, fortunately, there's a solution. In the book of Romans, Paul sets out on a journey to show us Jesus, to show us the wonderfulness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. In the first three, three, uh, two and a half, three chapters, what we see is Paul presenting a magnificent case for the fact that you and I are nothing, that you and I are sinners apart from Christ. He sums it up in the middle of chapter three, and he says, there is no one who is good. There's none that are righteous, not even one. And then he, he doesn't leave it there, right? That would be like the worst book ever if he just spent like three chapters just saying you're awful I'm awful 
let's pray. He follows that immediately after that section. He goes on and, and he says, but, but Jesus is the answer. Jesus has provided the way. Jesus is the solution to your sin and to my sin that you and I cannot overcome. And then he gets to chapter eight, verse one. And if you, if you got your Bible this morning, I want you to look at it in there. I've got it on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Romans chapter eight, verse one. It says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would encourage you, if you write in your Bible, underline that, highlight it, put some smiley faces next to it. Do something so every time you turn past this page, you see that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's as if he is saying, because if you've been around the Bible any length of time, you, you know that word therefore, that should, that should draw your eye to that and it should cause you to ask, well, why is that there? Well, it's as if Paul is saying, in light of who you and I are, apart from Jesus, sinners, nothing, evil, bad, right? The first three chapters of Romans. In light of who you and I are, but in light of who Jesus is and all that he has done, do not go about life condemned. Do not go about life living as though you have been judged and sentenced. Again, exactly what the enemy wants us to do. I think he considers it a win. If we have our, you know, our summer camp moment when we were in high school and we go forward and we receive Jesus as our savior, but if we just kind of live in this, this wallow of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough, you're, you're right, you're not. But we're gonna look at in a second that Jesus is. But if he can get us to live there, he wins. And so I, I want to unpack very quickly for us this morning some things contained in Romans 8 because I don't want you to go away thinking some things. I want you to go away thinking some other things. So hang with me really quick as we move through this. What I'm saying this morning doesn't mean, okay, hear me. Everybody look at me so I know, I know you're at least hearing this part. This doesn't mean that sin goes unpunished. Right, this isn't just a, you know, Paul says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Great, go do whatever you want. Live it up. No. I just told, we, we just talked about the fact that Paul has spent much ink to the contrary. He has talked about how significant sin is. He says in Romans 6.23, if you went to Awana or Sunday school or anything, you know this, right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. I don't know about you. I think that's kind of a big deal. Death, I, I don't have to tell my four-year-old that death is bad, right? He gets that. The wages of sin, of my sin, of your sin, is death. The consequence for the life that we are born into and the life that we live apart from Jesus is death. But here's what it does mean. We aren't the ones who are punished for it. Condemnation was indeed handed down, but not to you and me. 1 John chapter 2. Verses one and two, this is a great, a great verse. John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, okay, good. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation there, it's my favorite word in the whole New Testament. I love it. It's fun to say, propitiation. You know what it means? It means the appeasement of God's wrath. We have an advocate with the father who took his wrath. He paid for our sin. Paul gives us a little more detail on this in Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you get that? While we were yet sinners. While you and I are are, are and were and will be in the act of sinning, Jesus has died for our sin. It almost paints a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross and you and I standing at the foot of it committing sin. And Jesus says, I I got that one. My blood covers that. It's a beautiful, a beautiful picture. How does does this happen? And this might be stuff that, that you know and you're tracking with me. So this is a great opportunity for us to rejoice and to praise the Father for the reminder of these things. Look back at Romans chapter eight, verses three and four. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Hang with me here. Don't get lost on the whole law stuff, okay? Very quickly, the law, the Old Testament could not save people. Did a phenomenal job of showing everybody how bad they were, right? Because they, they had this law in the Old Testament and, and if, if you did this, you had to offer this as a sacrifice. If you did this, you had to offer this. And from what I know of myself, I kind of feel like if I lived in the Old Testament, I probably should have just set up camp at the tabernacle and just, you know, because it's like you go in and you offer sacrifice for something and you come out and it's like, oh, I, I just sinned again. Okay, let's go back and take care of that, right? They were continuing to go back and offer these sacrifices and you got to believe they got the picture, right? I'm not good enough. I have to offer a sacrifice. Well, that's why it says in verse three, for God has done what the law could not do. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh like you and I, so Jesus could condemn sin. Jesus convicted, sentenced, and punished sin. He did what we couldn't do. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I, I know I got a lot of verses for you this morning, but these, I think these are so powerful. If you miss one, grab me afterwards and, and I'll help you out. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther, phenomenal preacher, a guy who we we owe a lot of who we are today as a church to him. Martin Luther called this verse the great exchange. I love that, the great exchange. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, he was sinless, to be sin. Jesus became sin. And what did we get out of the deal? The righteousness of God. 
This, this is why, remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and one of the things that he utters was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the father was looking upon him and he, he saw your sin and my sin and, and the father could not bear to see our sin placed upon his son. And so he turned away. We've seen that song, right? How deep the father's love. The father turned his face away because Jesus became our sin. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I love this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do it? He set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. Amen. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He wasn't talking about his time hanging on the cross, right? That wasn't his way of saying, okay, guys, let's wrap this up. No, he said it is finished because the battle between sin and God was done away with. Jesus took it out of the way. Uh, in, in his book, uh, Radical by David Platt, which I would highly recommend it. If you haven't read it yet, get it, read it. Uh, Platt says this in regards to this, this cry of it is, it is finished. He says, one preacher described it as if you and I were standing a short hundred yards away from a dam of water, 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide. All of a sudden that dam was breached and a torrential flood of water came crashing toward us. Right before it reached our feet, the ground in front of us opened up and swallowed it all. At the cross, Christ drank the full cup of the wrath of God. And when he had down the last drop, he turned the cup over and he cried out, it is finished. So you and I can stand here today uncondemned. The weight of sin is not on our shoulders. It is not for you and I to pay. It is not for you and I to wrestle with. Go back to John 8. The woman standing ashamed. Let's keep going in the story. John chapter eight, verse six. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and, and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. We get a great picture uh, of, of, of this, our, our uncondemnedness, and I know that's not a word, but our lack of condemnation, we see that here. This woman is dragged before Jesus in an effort to, to trap him, in, in an effort to kind of paint him into a corner. Can you just picture the Pharisees standing around? All right, Jesus, what are you going to do? And he bends down and he writes in the sand and we have no idea what he wrote. There's speculation, but we have no idea what he wrote. And since we don't really know, I don't know that it matters a whole lot to the story. But he bends down and he writes in the sand and he stands up and he says, hey, if you're sinless, go for it. Let her have it. Which the really interesting thing about that, who's, who was the only one in that situation who was sinless? It was Jesus. 
And Jesus bends down again and he continues to, to write in the sand. And everybody goes away, one by one. And then, and then what we see is that Jesus, he then addresses the woman. Did you catch that in the account? He, he doesn't even appear to look upon the woman until he deals with her accusers. See, one author says, says it like this. He says, Jesus speaks forgiveness to us not because we are not guilty. We've looked a lot this morning at how we are. Not because we are not guilty and certainly not because God winks at our sin. Jesus is not unconcerned with justice, far from it. It was the work of his life and his death. Jesus can say to this woman and to you and I this morning, neither do I condemn you because he has driven off the accusers having exhausted the law's penalty against sins that he took up for us. It is the cross that solves the dilemma between justice and mercy to the glory of God in the highest. Jesus has taken away the accusers and he looks at this woman and he says to her, woman, which wasn't a mean thing, by the way. Like there was kindness and there was sensitivity in that. And he says, woman, neither do I condemn you. And then he gives her a call. He tells her what to do. He says, go and sin no more. A couple quick things about that. If that had been reversed, I wouldn't be here today. If he said, go and sin no more, and then I'll think about not condemning you, guess what? We all lose. Because I can try, you can try. You might last a little longer than me, but eventually we are all going to fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus tells her, I do not condemn you. And he gives her this call to go and sin now, sin no more. And now I get, I get it, right? I've been wrestling with this all week. I'm like, that sounds so easy, right? Just, sure, Jesus, just say it, right? Like easy for you to say, and it is. But can you think of a greater response to the mercy of God than going to live a life that is honoring to Jesus? Go and sin no more. Well, what, does this, what does this look like? What does this uncondemned life look like? I've got just a few things for us as we close. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just some stuff that I came up with as I was kind of marinating on this passage this week. I think one of the first markers of an uncondemned life is that we are quick to know and silence the whispers of the enemy. And it might take time, right? It might take maturity and growth and not distinguishing the whispers of the enemy. But if we live an uncondemned life, if we understand that part of the gospel, we'll hear him in whatever voice he uses. I think another marker of an uncondemned life is we are slow to condemn others. Because the ground at the foot of the cross is even. Jesus died for my sin and he died for your sin. And he died for, for, for everyone else's sins. He didn't have to die any less for mine than for yours. 
being a marker of an uncondemned life is we are slow to condemn others. Which, by the way, this is almost a whole other sermon in and of itself, but today it's so easy to do that, right? We're given so many ways that we can condemn others so easily. Let's live out that part of the gospel. Another marker of an uncondemned life is that we loudly speak our freedom. If Jesus Christ is your living hope, if you recognize that he is the one that allows you to be able to stand here uncondemned by your sin this morning, why wouldn't you tell everybody? Right? We went to uh, uh, the new Detweilers market the other day, which is super cool. I'm probably going to need a raise so I can go back in there and buy all the stuff I want to buy, right? And we were, we were walking through, you know, like the whole world was there. Um, and we're walking through and they were having a, apparently having a sale on some chicken. We had at least two guys who worked there stop us to tell us about how great the deal was on this chicken. It's chicken, right? I mean, I'm sure it's great. We, we didn't buy it. I'm sure it's great. I'm sure it's wonderful. I'm sure it was a great deal. That's chicken. Has no impact on my eternity. Yet how free, how quickly are we to talk about how great or not so great our football team did yesterday? We should all the more run to our freedom and loudly proclaim it. Another marker, two more. Another marker is that we are swift to repent. I think Jesus gets when he tells this woman, go and sin no more. He's not like, whew, okay, I got one out of the way. She's good to go. No. But I think the, a mark of living an uncondemned life is we recognize when we've messed up. And we are longing for that interaction with Jesus, right? We're longing to come back to him and, and repent and, and hear those words, no longer do I condemn you, go and sin no more. All right, Jesus, here we go. And lastly, a mark of living an uncondemned life. We worship unashamed. Because we recognize what he has done. We recognize who we are. And I'm not going to, to dictate what your unashamed worship looks like. But there should be a boldness in our worship. When we sing songs of praise, we, we should be crying out. Regardless of how good or bad our voice sounds, it doesn't matter. Because of who he is and what he has done for us. We should long to gather together with God's people and to cry out. We should long to be those weirdos driving in our car with nobody else and we're like singing. Like, I do that. I love listening to worship music and sometimes a song gets me and I just, I just go for it, right? But then I'm like, oh, like I, hope, like I hope nobody was next to me at that light, right? Because I look really weird right now. As we gather, we should worship unashamed. We're going to do that right now. The worship team is going to come back up and we're going to do just two more songs. To me, it just felt extremely appropriate and fitting to provide an opportunity for us this morning to worship Jesus 
because he has, he has taken our sin out of the way. He's nailed it to the cross. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we, we, I think we have a pretty good idea of how sinful we are, of how bad we are. We know the choices we've made. We know the things that, that we don't want anybody else to know this morning. We know the things that the enemy is using to whisper in our ears to cause us to think and believe that, that you died for everything else but that sin. Yet Jesus, your word tells us that you have done away with sin. You have taken it out of the way. So there's no need this morning for us to feel that weight, for us to feel that burden. Jesus, maybe there are those in this room this morning who have never entered into a relationship with you and they want that freedom. Lord, I pray that they would recognize their need for you. They would recognize the reality of who they are and the reality of who you are. They would open their heart to you. Jesus, I'm sure there's also some in this room this morning who, who they have a relationship with you, but they're living under the weight of their sin. They've bought the lie that the enemy has sold them. And Lord, I, I would ask this morning that they would recognize the reality of who you are and what you have done, how you have taken it out of the way and how you have nailed it to the cross.